So hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. We're joined today by Arnie Bernstein. Arnie, thank you for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me. I love, love doing these things. Oh, anytime. And I'm, I feel like we're in for such a treat because you have multiple books and an essay that you can read from uh, to us from. And so I love being read to. So I want to say like a special thank you for giving us multiple things that we can hear. I do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to know, can you tell us a little bit about Bath Massacre, America's first school bombing and what led you to write the book? Sure. It's, it's a horrifying story. It's about the first a school killing in American history. I and mean, people think Columbine and all those things. It, the short version is there was a school trustee at this uh, school in Bath, Michigan. It's about 12 miles outside of Lansing on May 18th, 1927. It was, uh, th- they had no electricity in the town at the time. I like to say that, you know, the roaring twenties were right past Bath. It's a, it's a small town. Still looks the same pretty much as, as it did in, uh, in the 1920s. But what happened was about 8.30 or so that morning, the north wing of the school just blew up and they thought it could have been the boiler had exploded or something, but it collapsed on it and it was heard for miles. And of course, it was a devastating scene. There were you know, children trapped inside, uh, bodies were thrown, you know, I mean, I don't want to get too gory on here, but it's about as worse, terrible a scene as you can possibly imagine. You know, with bodies being trapped in a, a building that has collapsed on them, it's it, it was it was horrifying. The uh, and so a rescue effort began. And keep in mind, this is before they just didn't have the large equipment that we would have today. Um, it was a it w- it basically it was thrown together. Kind of you know, people came from all over, from miles around, to start the rescue effort. Children were being pulled out, both alive and dead. Um, the kids who were managed to dig themselves out looked like, I, I say in the book, dust-covered moles. They were you know, just, it, it was awful. Meanwhile, a few miles away, the farm of a man named Andrew Kehoe caught a blaze. And it, the fire spread rapidly. He pulled out, and they, they, these are the small town USA. They were doing the fire brigade to try to put out the flame and he drove out people saw him drive out from this giant cloud of smoke and he said boys you my friends you better get out of here you better go down to the school people what what is he talking about he drove to the school pulled up in front of it uh like a bat out of hell he just like pulled up right in front and the superintendent of the school a man named emory hike now he and kehoe did not get along they were constantly fighting on the school board. And if anyone has ever been to school board meetings, there's nothing strange about that. Um, I worked in education for many years. And when friends read the book, they said, did you base the characters of, you know, Kehoe and Hike after this guy and that guy who were always fighting? I said, no, but they were really good models. But so they were always fighting. And Hike came up to the truck. He said, you know, put the animosity aside. He said, we need your we need your truck. We need to get ropes. We need to get ladders. We need to rescue these kids. And Keo said, okay, I'll take you with me. And Hike, this look of horror on his face, eyewitnesses told me about this. And he said, you know something about this, don't you? Keo picked up a gun, fired it into the cab of his truck. There was dynamite in the truck. He blew it. It was a suicide bomber. 
situation. He and he, he and uh, Hike were just blown to pieces. Shrapnel. He had packed his, the cap of his truck with old nuts, bolts, um, rusty things, nails, and it flew out like shrapnel. Killed a couple more people um, and just injured others. Uh, meanwhile, his wife, they could not find his wife, Kehoe's wife, um, who was a sickly woman. She had some kind of lung disease, possibly tuberculosis. She was always in and out of the hospital. And they could not find her. Um, the next day after the, his, they just left his farm to burn. They couldn't, uh, they, they had to concentrate the rescue on the school. But the next day they found the remains of his wife burned beyond recognition, um, in a cart. There was on like a little, you know, it, it was like a box on top of a little cart. And there was um, next to, next to, you know, the remains of her head. She was, you know, burned, you know, I mean, beyond recognition. They found two strong boxes uh, with like silverware and money and various other things inside of it. And on the edge of his farm, there was a sign um, stenciled that said, killers are made, not born. That's the short version of this. It's obviously a much more detailed story. Uh, how did I find it? I was looking for a narrative to write about. And I was just casting you know, my way through the internet. Now, there's a site I absolutely love. It's called Find a Grave. And it is, it's sort of a catalog of, of graveyards and you know, cemeteries and you know, where you know, the famous are buried and you know, other people as well um people catalog these things you know take photos and things my own parents i discovered are are on that site someone i have no idea who it is took their picture of there and other people too it's 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 a remarkable site but one day i saw something called the bath school massacre memorials i thought what is this clicked on it and read the story and i said my god i've got to write about this now long story short again i contacted the people in bath they were very hesitant to speak with me. Uh, as you can imagine, I mean, it's their story, uh, you know, and it's a small insular town and these people of, you know, who are descendants of, of survivors and victims, you know, they, they're caretakers of memory and they have in the middle school, they have a, uh, what they call the best school museum and they, uh, they have rem- remnants and artifacts of that terrible day. And, uh, you know, so we, they, they've sort of the, you know, school museum committee and we met and I gave them my presentation, um, and took about a year for them to, you know, trust me and keep coming. You know, I kept going showing, I was you know serious about this. It's about, I live in Chicago. So, and Bath is outside of Lansing, Michigan, the middle of the mitten who, if anyone knows Michigan and I, uh, they grew to trust me. And I later found out that. A lot of people had come to them with ideas and they'd turn them all down, but they liked me. They liked my presentation. They saw how serious I was. And I was flabbergasted. They said, why didn't you tell me that in the first place? And they said, no, we wanted to be sure. And, um, you know, and, you know, today I'm like, you know, I, I like to joke around that I'm the town celebrity. Um, they have something called a, uh, the bath, the, the 50 year, uh, reunion luncheon that every, year around saturday closest to the date of the uh of the bombing they uh it's it's so charming they have they honor the 50th graduating class uh you know of the school and you know like you know whatever whatever it would be and 
then they, you know, they, you know, they honor the children. Of course, there were 38 children and four adults were killed. Two teachers, superintendent and the local postmaster, plus Andrew Kehoe and his wife, Nellie. So it, it, it's, it's just a horrifying state story. But I, I go to that every year and it, it's just. It's so moving and it's also delightful because, you know, it, it's, you know, old town America and it, this wonderful luncheon, but, you know, with a, with a, a sadness tinged around it. I love that you go and that you've shown them that it wasn't just about telling the story, but it was a way of honoring and embracing the story and that you, yeah. you still return, you still go back and yeah. it's a part of you and you're a part of that town. I yeah. You know, my you- cousin, my cousin said, you know, in a way, it's you became part of the story and i think she's right um i I was very reluctant to kind of take ownership of that and i was told by many people that nobody would talk about it and which is understandable i mean like survivors of you know car wrecks or you know like the holocaust or things like that you know 9-11 they don't like to talk about it and I was told after i came and after my book came out people started to talk about it I had a long time taking ownership that that it, that I had been an instigator of that, and I'm still, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging them, but it's 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 humbling to know that this is something I accomplished. I wanted to write a great book, um, and instead I took on the the role of a lifetime that has been, you know, an, a privilege and a, you know, my greatest honor to tell this story and to tell it right. Wonderful. Could we hear our first reading, please? I'm going to read something from the second edition. The original edition came out in 2009. Uh, after it came out, I was contacted by a couple of survivors who found out about the book and wanted to go on the record for me. I had interviewed four survivors for the original edition. And, you know, I recorded these and, you know, I donated the the uh, recordings to the Bath School Museum. And I was kind of kept in the back of my mind. Maybe we'll revisit it. And the publisher, University of Michigan Press, wonderful, wonderful press, we discussed, you know, the 95th anniversary of the bombing was coming up. And we said, let's let's do it. It, it, it deserves to be redone. So what I'm going to read to you is the introduction to the new edition. It came out earlier this year. It came out in uh, March of this year. In 2007, when I interviewed Harold Burnett, a survivor of the Bath School bombing, he was in the early stages of Alzheimer's. Remembering what he'd eaten for lunch was impossible. Bowen asked about May 18th, 1927. Harold recalled everything with clarity. He remembered the chaos, the bloodshed, the horror that played out on that day. The memories, forged when Harold was eight years old, were indelible. With a little coaxing from his daughter Michelle Allen and me, the stories flowed. Mostly Harold remembered his big brother Floyd, an 11-year-old gifted with an innate talent for baseball. Had he not been killed in the bombing, Harold told us. Floyd could have made it to the major leagues. He was that good. Bath Massacre, America's first school bombing, is not just a book about the first mass school killing in our nation's history. It is also about memory and the importance of bearing witness. I was fortunate enough to interview four survivors during my research. Harold Burnett, Willis Cressman, Lee Mast, and Josephine Cushman Vale. After the book published in 2009, I was contacted by two other survivors, Myrna Gates Coulter and Ralph Witchell, whose stories have been added to this updated edition. Our conversations were filled with vivid reminiscences, 
spanning eight decades. Bath is a quintessential small Midwestern town, about seven miles from Michigan's state capital of Lansing. May 18th, 1927 is part of the town's essential character. The site of the former Bath Consolidated School, torn down in the late 1970s, is now James Cousins Memorial Park. Anchoring the park center is the cupola that stood atop the old building. Cement posts of the school's original foundation poke out on the lawn. A boulder, bearing a plaque with the names of those killed in the bombing, sits on the edge of the park. Across the street, in the dedicated wing of the middle school, is the Bath School Museum. Cases lining the museum hold books, papers, and other artifacts of the crime. The American flag that flew in front of the school on May 18, 1927, hangs framed on the wall. The school clock, permanently fixed at the exact time the dynamite hidden beneath the school ignited, looks over the hallways. Old photographs, yellowing with age, show first-hand images of the bombing and its aftermath. The memorial statue, Girl with Cat, is on display. The museum is overseen by a committee of Bath residents, most of whom have familial connections to the crime. Children and grandchildren of survivors, nieces and nephews of the 38 children who were killed, descendants of rescuers and first responders. The museum committee is a caretaker of memory. On December 14th, 2012, I flipped open my laptop to check the morning news. What came up was monstrous. In Newtown, Connecticut, a gunman, armed with a Bushmaster AR-15 semi-automatic rifle, was unleashing his firepower throughout the Sandy Hook Elementary School. When it was all over, 20 school children, ages 6 and 7, were slain. Six school staff members, including the Sandy Hook principal, were murdered. The killer's mother was shot dead in her home. The gunman committed suicide. My first thought, like so many people across the country, was, oh my God, not again. Memories of other mass school killings flashed in the collective consciousness of the world. The Columbine shooting of April 20th, 1999. The Virginia Tech shooting of April 16th, 2007. The Northern Illinois University shooting of February 14th, 2008. And so many more. My second thought was, I think I'm going to be busy. I was right. Within a couple of hours, emails started coming in. As author of the book on America's deadliest school killing, people wanted my thoughts on this new mass murder of elementary school children. I was interviewed by media throughout the United States and even a network radio program in Australia. It was an awesome responsibility, being the spokesperson for two generations of murdered children, separated by almost 86 years. One question was repeated in every interview. How did the Bath School bombing connect with modern school killings? That is a question I wrestled with throughout the writing of Bath Massacre, and one inevitably asked during my presentations on the book. It would be easy for any writer to conjure up some sort of answer that links dark underlying forces between the perpetrator of the 1927 school bombing with the actions of modern-day mass murderers. This is all too simplistic. From Bath to Columbine to the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida, each of these crimes was the result of unhinged minds driven by inner demons. We want a rational explanation to the question, why does this happen? The tragic reality is that the definitive answer does not exist, at least within the rational mind. Psychopathic murder, as detailed later in these pages, 
is an individualistic force of human nature that cannot be reckoned. Mass murder is existential, a horror that stretches across the eons of history. Still, there is a connective emotional tissue that unites the Bath School bombing and modern-day school killings. From an act of evil emerges communal solicitude. Survivors, family, and friends gather to mourn and comfort. People from around the world who have no connections to the victims offer prayers. Lives brutally ripped away are honored and remembered. Their memories are held close. The dead are not forgotten. Another profound similarity between Sandy Hook and Bath unites two teachers of different generations. Their stories mirror each other across the decades. During the Sandy Hook massacre, Vicki Soto, a 27-year-old first-grade teacher, was gunned down as she stood protecting her students from the gunman. Soto had a counterpart in Bath. Hazel Weatherby, just 21 years old, was in her first year of teaching elementary school. Weatherby was found in the wreckage of the bomb building, barely alive, tightly holding close two of her students. She handed the children over to rescuers and then succumbed to her massive injuries. Vicky Soto and Hazel Weatherby were both young, dedicated teachers, well-regarded by their colleagues and beloved by children throughout their respective schools. And in their final moments of life, Ms. Soto and Ms. Weatherby instinctively gave their last full measure of devotion to their students. The night of the Newtown shooting, I emailed a friend of mine, a pastor who lived in Connecticut. Did she know what was going on? Yes, she responded. I live five miles from Sandy Hook. I was in the firehouse when parents were told their children weren't coming home. I'm ministering families. After reading her email, I took a breath. It was May 18th, 1927, all over again. For whatever reason, I was now a fulcrum between Bath and Newtown, two American towns in anguish over the massacre of their innocence. The word of Albert Einstein came to mind. God does not play dice with the universe. I called Michelle Allen, who is a member of the Bath School Museum Committee. Michelle, I said, if anyone knows how Newton feels, it's Bath. Maybe the committee could send condolences? Michelle, as gentle as a soul I've ever known, embraced the idea. An eloquent letter was written and forwarded on to my friend. It was published in the Newtown local newspaper. My friend sent back a note thanking the people of Bath for their kindness and prayers. People united by epic heartbreak were connected in solace and sympathy. Every May in Bath, there was a high school reunion held on the Saturday closest to May 18th. Former students gather in the school gym, sharing memories over lunch as they salute the class celebrating their 50th year of graduation from Bath High School. At the 2013 luncheon, Sandy Hook weighed heavy on everyone's mind. A few survivors of the 1927 bombing were in attendance, Bath School graduates now in their late 90s. One of them, Irene Dunham, was well over 100 years old. After lunch, the letters between Bath and Newtown were read aloud. Throughout the room, tears flowed for two generations of martyred children. The persistence of memory remains fresh. When I interviewed Josephine Cushman for this book, she was in her mid-90s. In 1927, she was 14. Her little brother, Ralph, who was killed in the bombing, was just seven years old. She recalled everything with grisly detail. Some of the most graphic sections of this book came from my two interviews with her. When Josephine told me what Ralph looked like when his broken body was laid out in the morgue, I felt terrible. 
These were such gruesome memories. I just couldn't allow myself to risk upsetting her. Josephine, I said, you don't have to tell me this. No, she responded, voice strong and firm. I'm not going to be here much longer. I want people to know what happened. Bearing witness to the victims of the Bath Consolidated School bombing is a duty taken on with love. Memories are handed down to children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and beyond. The story of Bath is one of resiliency, a town with deep scars, but always united to hold close the souls of dear ones whose lives were cut short. Wow, that's really powerful. You know, so you you did interviews. I'm really curious about the other sort of research that went into writing the book and what was the hardest part about the writing and the researching? You know, I'm just a curious guy. And so I love stories that fall into the cracks of history. And this certainly was one. Um, When I found it, I thought, why don't I know about this? And when the book came out, people would say, why don't I know about this? I, you know, I went through uh, newspaper accounts of the day, the Lansing State Journal, which was the local newspaper, although this made headlines around the world. And of course, the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, there actually is footage of it, the newsreels, the the uh, films that were shown as, as news stories in, in movie theaters, took photos, took film of this, of the uh, remains of the school, you know, certainly interviews with with the survivors, with the survivors' children. I, because this was, uh, he had wired the school with, uh, with the explosives. I didn't know anything about electricity. So I interviewed uh, someone who had formerly worked for the power company and he gave me all kinds of insight and I knew nothing about explosives. So I had a friend who was an explosive expert in the army and he told me, you know, a lot of what I needed to know. So this is all what went into it. I, my brain is sort of like a mix master. When I'm doing these things, I just I absorb myself in the material and just let it come out. And it came into shape. I had two models for this: uh, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, which is a, uh, just a masterpiece of the form. And after I finished my book, um, and I was about to go on you know tour, and I reread my book, I thought, my goodness, I really absorbed In Cold Blood. And then uh, my other model was Norman Mailer's The Executioner's Song which is about the Gary Gilmore case, uh, the, the man who wanted the death penalty after he was two brutal murders and he was uh, given the death penalty. And he said, listen, I'm a terrible person. I want my sentence. And it created quite a conflict across the United States, people for the death penalty against it. And he wanted his death penalty sentence. Uh, Mailer did an incredible job with this book. And so those are my two models. Wow. Could we have another reading, please, either from this book or another piece that you'd like to share? Sure. I'm going to read a piece that was published earlier this year in the Chicago Tribune. It also deals, uh, in a way, I guess, with death. Not that I'm a morbid guy. <laughs> it sounds like I'm coming <laughs> off that way. But I'm, I'm an avid runner. And I live in neighborhood I live in Chicago is, you could almost say, Cemetery Central. Uh, there are a lot of cemeteries around here. And I, I they great tracks, you know, lots of you know, hills and loops and dips uh, and nobody's around. So, you know, they're, they're great tracks for running on. But it's also heavily Catholic cemeteries. And there was one I was running in. It, it's not a Catholic cemetery per se, but it, a heavy Catholic population, as it were. And I noticed something amid the graves and there were two Jewish names in there. And I thought, my goodness, what are, what are these two Jewish guys doing in the middle of all these Catholics? And 
you know, there was nobody around them. They were really lonely graves. One had died in, I believe, in the 70s. And the other was a 18-year-old boy who had died in 1919 and nobody around him. And there's a tradition in uh, Judaism when you go to the cemetery and visit your loved ones, you leave a stone. It just is a way of acknowledging your visit and as a way of remembrance. I started leaving stones. It just felt like the thing to do. And so I, I wrote a piece about this that was published in the Chicago Tribune. And I'm going to read that to you. And it's called, During My Runs Through Cemeteries, I Leave Stones on Jewish Graves. I'm Running Kaddish. And this was published uh, February 23rd of this year. When I first started running a few years ago, I looked for quiet roads without traffic, crosswalks, stoplights, train crossings, and other roadblocks to urban runners. I fortunately live in Chicago, a city rich in cemeteries. Within a 10-mile radius of my house, there's a trove of necropolises, well-suited for runners. One of my favorite courses is Mount Olivet Cemetery. It is serious Chicago street cred. It is the final resting place of Catherine O'Leary, the Mrs. O'Leary, of Great Chicago Fire Infamy, a resident since her death in 1895. Another notable gravestone belongs to Al Capone, although he is no longer buried in that plot. Capone was buried in Mount Olivet upon his death in 1947, but neighbors living near the cemetery complained about the mobster's grave becoming a lively tourist attraction. Capone's remains were disinterred and moved to Mount Carmel Cemetery in West Suburban Hillside, a graveyard that also houses the remains of Chicago archbishops, including Cardinal Joseph Bernadine. Another of my favorite courses is Mount Hope, a 16-acre cemetery. Its beautifully landscaped grounds are runner's paradise, with plenty of loops, dips, hill climbs, and even a set of stairs within the many oak trees. Mount Hope also has its share of famous names, most notably George Buckweaver, a member of the 1919 Chicago Black Sox. My far south side neighborhood of Beverly has one of the city's largest Irish Catholic populations. I'm one of the handful of Jewish residents. The living population is reflected in Mount Olivet and Mount Hope, with their considerable concentration of graves with Irish Catholic residents. But one day, as I ran past the many Frawleys and McCarthys buried in Mount Hope, I was surprised to see a grave marker reading, Lovingly, George O. Zorn, 1896-1983. A Jewish star was next to his name. No family was buried on either side. It was a surprise to see one of my Jewish co-religionists on my running trail within a cemetery of largely Catholic residents. We're everywhere, I thought, and kept going. But Zorn isn't the only Jewish soul resting in Mount Hope. A few months after stumbling across Zorn's gravesite, I saw another Jewish grave, Gerald Schwartz, 1908-1920. He was laid to rest on the other side of the cemetery trail. Because of his age, it was possible he was a victim of the flu pandemic. Like Zorn, there were no family names within sight. I kept running, but the names remained transfixed in my mind. In Judaism, there was a tradition of leaving a small stone when visiting a grave. As with many Jewish customs, its origin is best explained by Tevya, the protagonist in Fiddler on the Roof. How did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. One possibility is that during biblical times, leaving a pile of stones was the only way to find the location of where someone was buried, as well as protect the body from being dug up by animals. 
But there is another school of thought, both simple and profound. Floral arrangements are, while beautiful, wither and die. Stones hold fast, serving as a reminder that for those who have gone before us, the persistence of their memory should be everlasting. Yet Zorn and his young neighbor Schwartz seem lonely, forgotten by the decades. I felt compelled to remember them. Every runner has their rituals, and honoring these graves became part of mine. Every time I ran past their final resting places, I scooped up a little stone, placed it on their grave markers, and recited a few lines of the Mourner's Kaddish, the Jewish prayer for the dead. It became as important a ritual as picking the right shoes or warming up. My running took on an unexpected dimension. The cemetery was no longer just a great running course. It was now a place where I could honor my kinsmen in a centuries-old tradition. I was a custodian for the continuum of memory. Research on Zorn and Schwartz turned up little information. Zorn's wife, who preceded him in death, was buried in Michigan. Zorn was born in south suburban Blue Island, which borders Mount Hope. For the boy, I found only the names of his parents. As my miles piled up, so did the stones. I left them with every run, whispering those few words of the mourner's Scottish. A few months after my ritual began, I found another small pile of stones marking Schwartz's grave. Someone else was remembering this child, now a century dead. Someone else was reciting the mourner's Scottish for Gerald Schwartz. The source of the new stones were a mystery to me, perhaps as my stones were to this visitor. I've since found other Jewish graves in the cemeteries where I run. Leaving stones for these departed souls has an added spiritual quality to my runs. I don't pretend to be a rabbinical sage as to the meaning of any of this, but in my own way, leaving a small memorial at a lonely grave is important. I'm running Kaddish. Oh, how lovely. Well, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. And also just that, that someone else was maybe also inspired to leave stones after, you know, after seeing that you were doing it. Yes, um, I, it, it's a total mystery to me how, how that happened. And you still don't know? No, no, I don't. Oh, wow. I don't know. That feels like it makes it even more beautiful. So I guess because I only get one more question to ask. Sure. There are things I love about narrative nonfiction. And I feel like for me, it's that that storytelling and the way that authors will weave all of the elements. And so you can hear what it you know, sounds like. Right. You can smell it. You can feel it. You get this tension and you're, it's, it's like being told a story or, you know, being right. in it and immersed in it. And so I'm really curious about for you, what narrative nonfiction makes possible and also what might be a challenge that comes with it. Well, it's, it's a lot of what you said. It's, it's telling a story. Um, it's taking material. As I said before, I'm fascinated by stories that fall within the cracks of history and it's taking a story, finding the characters, finding the history of it, weaving a narrative out of all of this, putting it together, and writing a compelling narrative. And it uses the techniques of fiction. Anything I have inside of a character's head, you know, where they're thinking something or where there's dialogue, I've taken from official records or, you know, memoirs that people have written so that I get an under, you know, so that I'm not lying per se, I'm not making stuff up. But, you know, I can get inside their heads. I can have their dialogue. I can have them interacting with each other. It's a challenge to be sure. It's, it's a real challenge. And that, that's the part I like. 
I like to tease my friends who write fiction that all you have to do is, is sit down and, and make stuff up. Yeah, right. Um, and I know it's not that easy, but I do enjoy this whole process. It's compelling. It's a challenge. I read mostly nonfiction anyway, biographies, um, history, narrative nonfiction. So, you know, I like being in the game, I guess. And how do you know when you get it right? Like when you get the voice, you know, right and a tone right, because you are um, paying homage to, to memory and to this caretaker of memory for, you know, real events and real people. Yeah, I'm just curious. What is that process for you? Like, how do you know when you're like, yeah, that's it? That's such an interesting question. And I'm not sure I know how to answer that. Sometimes, I, you know, when like every writer, you just get in your zone and you know things are cooking. Sometimes I don't realize it till after I'm done. Mm. And, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes, and like I say, sometimes it happens in the writing. Sometimes it was not self-evident in the writing. Sometimes it comes in the editing process, which is so important because you want to get everything right, but you also want it well-written too, mm. um, to make it compelling. Um, and sometimes it comes from people telling me, you know, I really got what you were after. And, you know, sometimes I hear, you know, oh, I, I couldn't put your book down. I read it in, in, you know, two nights. And while that's flattering, I think, oh, my God, I worked like three years on that thing. It was three years of my life and you read it in two nights. I'm like, what was I doing? I'll tell you a funny story about this. My other book, which we did not mention, um, it's about a group of, I, I like to call it American Nazis of the 1930s and the people who beat them up. It's called Swastika Nation, Fritz Kuhn, and the Rise and Fall of the German-American Bund. It's the true story of a, a Nazi movement of the late 1930s that was loud and noisy. But, you know, you can't loud, noisy Nazis in the late 1930s in America got a lot of people, you know, fighting back. And it, it was a wild cast of characters. I'll never have a cast of characters like this again. Of course, you had Fritz Kuhn, the, the leader of this movement, who was the most unlikely leader you could imagine. Um, thick jowls, thick German accent, thick glasses dressed up in a, you know, the, the Sam Brown belt and a Hitler-like uniform and a chick magnet. Um, he got women like crazy, which led to his downfall because he was embezzling funds from the Bund to pay for his romances. But you had the, you know, and you had all these Bundists who followed him without question. And you had people who went after them. Walter Winchell, the newspaper columnist of New York. Uh, you had movie stars. Edward G. Robinson was involved. You had everyday citizens who got involved. You had politicians of uh, Fiorello LaGuardia and Thomas Dewey, who at LaGuardia was the mayor of New York mm. and Dewey was the prosecutor of New York. And that's how they found that he was embezzling funds. They knew they could not get him on a free speech issue. You're allowed to be obnoxious. And they got him on his taxes the same way they got Capone. And then there were the boys of the Jewish mafia who had very distinctive techniques to go after these uh, individuals, Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel and all the names we're familiar with. There was a well-known rabbi by the name of Stephen Wise and a judge, later congressman, by the name of Nathan Perlman. And they approached uh, Meyer Lansky and said, listen, we know you guys have unique methods that we don't have. You know, we'll be happy to pay you. Is there anything you can do to help put these away? And, you know, this is like on the hush hush. And to which Lansky said, Oh, you don't have to pay us. We'll take care of this. Um, it's a wild cast of characters. And I had, I had a blast, you know, putting it all together. But here's the funny part. My birthday is April 20th, same day as Hitler. And when I was a kid, people used to make fun of me and I felt terrible. And then I realized 
you know, as I became an adult, it was it was great to be a Jew on Hitler's birthday in the post-war era. It means we survived, we fought back, we won. Um, and so every time in the book they talked about, you know, how they were celebrating Hitler's birthday, I honestly, I was giggling when I was writing because I thought, yeah, I guess who's coming along in a few years who's going to tell your definitive story. <laughs> so it, it was why I didn't know if I was writing a uh, serious drama or incredible farce. And I think I did both. It, it, oh. it, it, was, it was a fun book to write. You know what? So we, we do have our final reading and you can choose to read whatever you'd like. So could we have our final reading, please? Sure. Um, you know what? I, I'll probably, I, since I whet the appetite for that, I'll, I'll probably read something for this. Okay, this is the prologue, February 20th, 1939, and what is going on will become self-evident. Pandemonium surrounded Madison Square Garden. 17,000-plus policemen strained to keep the crowd at bay. It was tough going. By one estimate, some 100,000 strong swarmed the streets. Fights broke out. Cops on foot and cops on horses fought back the melee. And yet, though his officers were overwhelmingly outnumbered, Police Commissioner Louis J. Valentine claimed there were enough of his men on the streets to, quote, stop a revolution. There was a preponderance of Jews backed up by a healthy number of Christians. Veterans of foreign wars, members were out in force. So were businessmen, housewives, students, trade unionists, Democrats, Republicans, socialists, Trotskyites, old and young, black and white, a crazy quilt New York crowd uniting as one, trying to get inside the garden which is open only to ticket holders of an exclusive event. Though police sympathies largely matched the crowds, the cops had to protect the garden, the speaker, and his audience. It wasn't something they wanted to do, but the law was the law. The people backing tonight's event had signed contracts and paid rental fees, and thus, according to both business arrangements and the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, they had every right to speak at the garden tonight. Inside the crowded arena, was a stark contrast to the street chaos. The place was also packed with audience joyous and orderly, row upon row of men and women dressed in uniform similarity. They clutched pamphlets, books, and other souvenirs bought from the many vendors lining the hallways of the garden. Banners, festooned with a glorious emblem, fluttered from the balconies. Tonight was a rally for their people, the cause, and a celebration of President George Washington's birthday. The speaker they were anticipating like Washington, marshalling a great movement towards the thunderous legacy of a world to come. Above the speaker's platform, dominating the hall with stoic presence, was a 30-foot-tall banner, a portrait of Washington himself, bathed by ethereal light, face solemn, resplendent in regalia, and with a ceremonial sword firmly clasped in his right hand. On either side of this banner, hanging just as tall, were the 48 star American flags, Betsy Ross banners of 13 circled stars representing the United States presided by the great Washington hung on the far end. Between these towering versions of old glory was another magnificent set of banners. They were adorned with the group's party symbol configured into a geometrical shape, rising almost phallic in its upward thrust, strong, mighty, ever powerful as Washington and ready to take on all enemies. The swastika. In perfect precision, men wearing crisp uniforms of black pants and brown shirts, military-style Sam Brown belts, and garrison caps marched down the aisles. They were the OD, a highly trained division of well-dressed bodyguards, who undertook their duties with brutal seriousness. Next came the drumline, 
wielding enormous bass drums and beating a strong tattoo, resounding throughout the arena. Finally were the flag bearers, a snaking line of American red, white, and blue, peppered with men bearing swastika banners. It was dramatic as it was impressive. A series of speakers addressed the gathering, and then, at last, to tumultuous applause, their leader Fritz Kuhn forcefully strode to the podium. Decked out in his dress uniform, ample belly held in tightly by his Sam Brun belt, Kuhn surveyed the loyal assembly, studying them through his thick glasses, a smile broadening his fleshy face. Followers packed every seat on the floor, overflowing into the rafters, tiny little dots of people from Kuhn's point of view, a mosaic of pure Aryan humanity. Right arms shot aloft, in mass, straight out, palm down, in a uniformly powerful salute. A rallying cry thundered throughout the garden in fierce unison. Free America! Free America! Free America! Kuhn stepped to the microphone to address his people. Guaranteed by the First Amendment, written by his beloved Washington's peers into the American Constitution, it was time to exercise his right to speak his mind, fully and freely. And then... You know what? I want to skip ahead so we get some sense of the people out there. In February 1939, the German-American Bund was a force on the march. Tonight, with George Washington's birthday rally, years of hard work were culminating. Though Kuhn's accent was thick, a still dominant vestige of his German origins, his voice was clear and strong. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bundesfeuer began. Fellow Americans, American patriots, I'm sure I do not come before you as a complete stranger. You have heard of me through the Jewish-controlled press, as a creature with horns, a cloven foot, and a long tail. The audience roared with laughing approval. On the floor, directly in front of the dais, a man snapped out of the crowd. He was determined, angry, hurling himself at the stage like a Rangers hockey linesman on the attack. The podium shook. A microphone tumbled to the floor. For a moment, Kuhn was flustered. Several OD bodyguards, a massive muscle, swarmed the man and pummeled him into submission through the power of fists and the thrilling crack of boot heels. The show of force was met with loud cheers, some 20,000 strong. The attacker's pants were ripped from his legs during the struggle. Later identified as an unemployed Jewish plumber's assistant from Brooklyn, the man was shoved into the waiting arms of New York's finest, handcuffed and hustled out of the garden. It was an unexpected surprise in a night of order. With the interloper now removed, Kuhn again looked over his people. He knew that beyond the followers, packed in Madison Square Garden tonight, were thousands more throughout the United States, eager to follow his every command in their shared dream of a great fascist, Jew-free America. But outside Madison Square Garden, beyond the hundred thousand protesters swarming New York streets, were other adversaries, disparate, unconnected, and as improbable a confederation that ever existed. They came from the halls of justice, from the annals of show business, and from the dark underbelly of America. Though far from united, they were singular in their goal to bring down Kuhn and smash his movement. Ensconced at New York City Hall was Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. The Little Flower, as he was known, a loose translation of his Italian name, would have been impure under Kuhn's American Reich, not for his Mediterranean blood, albeit that certainly was an Aryan. Rather, the beloved Italian who ran New York City was half-Jewish. LaGuardia embodied New York's ethnic melting pot, son of a Jewish mother and a lapsed Catholic father. By Judaism law, Lagardia was considered Jewish by virtue of his Hebrew mother. Moreover, the name Cohen, his mother's maiden name, linked him back to Kohanes, the ancient priestly lineage descended from Aaron, brother of Prophet Moses. And this half-Jewish leader of noble birth would not stand for Nazis, 
running amok in his city. Another man in New York, pounding pavement and typewriter keys, was Walter Winchell, bon vivant columnist and radio commentator, a man alternately feared and loved by show business personalities, politicians, and business figures of all stripes and ethics. Winchell had worked his way up from a two-bit vaudeville performer to a feared journalist. One biting sentence from Winchell could make or break a career. With an ever-present fedora fixed smartly on his head, he ruled New York City, perched from behind his typewriter or microphone, as well as his home away from home, Table 50, at New York's famed Stork Club. Great-grandson of a venerated Russian rabbi and grandson of a cantor, the singer of Jewish prayers at synagogues, Winchell was thoroughly assimilated into Gentile America, but was fiercely loyal to his people. Other reporters treaded carefully toward the subject of Hitler, Nazis, Kuhn, and the Bundes, and their kind. Winchell blasted through niceties, insulting a lot of them with the glib nickname Ratsies. He fired verbal slavos and bombs via the powerful of his media might. When Bundes came searching for revenge on their public tormentor, Winchell eagerly returned fisticuffs. There are other Bundes foes with a keen understanding of the brute level. They lurked in the underworld of New York and metropolises across the country. Sons of Israel, like LaGuardia and Winchell, these were Jews whose means and methods operated outside the law. Dark-skinned Yiddish-speaking men in fancy suits, they considered themselves to be businessmen, strictly businessmen, though their trade was rough. They included the likes of mob pioneers Meyer Littleman Lansky, a tough fighter with a head for numbers and a vision of running organized crime like a corporation, one that, in his words, would become, quote, bigger than U.S. steel. Lansky's childhood friend, Benjamin Siegel, an enforcer who had the guts and violent temper needed to pull necessary triggers, that reputation earned him the nickname Bugsy, since Siegel was considered as crazy as a bedbug. Abner Longies Wilman, king of the rackets in New Jersey, mentor and lover of a Hollywood legend, and commanding general to an army of Jewish prizefighters. And Mickey Cohn, a former street thug and Al Capone flunky, turned Benjamin Siegel protege, who then became a colorful character within Southern California's seamy landscape of movie stars, studio moguls, pimps, prostitutes, dope dealers, and other assorted miscreants. Lancy, Siegel, Zwillman, and Cohn, and their peers were a violent lot who knew the code of the streets, the crunching of bones necessary to vanquish enemies. Like modern-day versions of the golem, that legendary man of clay brought to life by the great Rabbi Lowe of 16th century Prague, they were summoned by judges, politicians, Hollywood power brokers, and even the highest figures of official Jewish leadership to protect fellow Jews from a common enemy. These starkers, strong, if less than noble big shots, were bad guys, but they were bad guys with Jewish hearts. Kuhn and his pundits didn't give a damn what a Jew's job was. They only cared about his blood. Blood, of course, was stock and trade for Lansky, Siegel's Wilman, and Cohn. Though not always respected by their fellow Jews, these men had no qualms doing what was necessary when it came to defending their people. None of this mattered inside the garden right now. Tonight, the German-American Bund was on the verge of a great victory, a march into history. Kuhn thundered ahead, words pouring out of him. Let the mob outside revel in their hate. Soon they would be under his command, a swastika nation with Kuhn at the helm. Kuhn had the loyalty of thousands, the passionate love of a golden-haired Aryan woman, his adoring children, and his wife. The stage was set. Wow. So where would you like us to go to buy your books? You can go to my website, certainly, 
and there are various ways to buy them. If you're looking for signed books, my local bookstore, uh, Bookies of Chicago, can arrange that for you. Um, in Indie Bound and Amazon, of course, all these places you can find my books. Wonderful. Arnie, thank you so much for being our guest, for reading to us and talking to us. I really appreciate having you on. Okay. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I'd like to give uh, my website to your listeners too, please. Sure. Um, it's arniebernstein.com. My name, all one word, A-R-N-I-E-B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N.com. I'm always happy to talk with people. Um, if you want to email me or, you know, Twitter at, you know, at realarnieb.com or, you know, whatever, you know, social media form you take. I'm all over the place, it seems. Um, I'd love talking with, with readers and people with curiosity about my stories I tell. Wonderful. So thank you so much for that generous offer for people to get in touch. <laughs> oh, th- thank you. This has been, this has been great fun. Um, I, I really enjoyed myself here. Oh, you're a good interviewer. Oh, so you're, now you're a good you. interviewer. You're a great interviewer. <laughs> so. Thank you so much.